there's a lot of work yeah that your generation the work that i do we there this is not a reality we need to sit in live in and mm-hmm. take you know this is a time for us to recognize there are many ways to activate um to change this reality podcast. My name is Somia. My name is Hema and today we have Penny Abbe-Wardena and do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am and for the purposes of this podcast, um, first of all, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Um, I am on the board of directors for the Center for Reproductive Rights, um, but I'm also enjoying a year of respite. I had been um, the Commissioner for International Affairs for New York City um, for eight years, and I stepped down in January, and I um, took some time off. I was knighted by the French government, and now I need to get a job. So (laughs) you guys are catching me at a good time. (laughs) So um, for this particular episode, we wanted to talk about reproductive rights just because um, with uh, recent events, a lot of us didn't see it coming. Um, for especially young women, we're like reading about this stuff in textbooks and history textbooks, like the yeah. um, uh, decision for Roe v. Wade and like Casey versus Planned Parenthood and all of those cases. We read about it and we're, we don't really understand what the struggle behind women's rights back then. And then now it's uh, catching up to us. And Basically, what I want to ask is, did you ever foresee a decision like this in like our present time? You know, I think there's like the emotional and I appreciate you um, framing that question in a really honest way, because I think it is fair. Like, you know, we've lived with the right to access to abortion for 50 years. I mean, to a certain extent, um, you know, I didn't know I not to a certain extent, I didn't know any of the reality, you know, and and that, and that I think is what is particularly shocking. So to answer your question, I think there's both the emotional and the intellectual reactions. Um, I've been on the board of directors for the Center for Reproductive Rights and some background there is that we are an important part of sort of the network and movement around access to reproductive and just women's healthcare, right? And that includes NARAL, Plant Parenthood, everybody has their um, has their important lane in terms of what they advocate and who they support. And the Center for Reproductive Rights is really like the legal arm. Um, we were the litigating arm that um, was defending um, the Mississippi Jackson uh, Women's Center that was at the heart of the case that was with the Supreme Court. Um, and I've been on the board since COVID. I joined like spring 2020 um, and the conversations were already happening. The center, because they had seen um, a lot of the legal decisions that were being, you know, were happening quite honestly when Amy Comey Barrett was appointed, you know, the institution knew right away, this was coming down the pike. How quickly, you know, nobody could tell, but <laughs> apparently very quickly. Um, and so I think, you know, like intellectually, we knew this was happening. We were planning for it. But me personally, emotionally, like when it happened, I was just like shocked. I was, it was just like, what? Like, how? How is this even possible? Even though intellectually, you see the entire infrastructure that allowed for this to happen. Um, and so that's, that's, my, that's my answer. And I think everybody has, um, depending on age, depending on experience, depending on 
sort of gender affiliation, how you were able to get that news. Um, I have a feeling no matter where you are, we were all shocked. <laughs> you know, it, it, is, it, is, it is quite extraordinary and um, really, really terrifying because quite honestly, it's not, it is about reproductive health, but fundamentally it's about women's access to healthcare. And we need to remember that. Like, you know, this is, this is a healthcare human rights conversation as much as anything else. And we need to think about it like that. I um, read somewhere like, that my parents, my mom and my grandma, they probably had more rights to like abortion access than I do and I will or my children might. And I think that's such a crazy perspective. Well, 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 let's let's stop that because the thing is, you're you, you guys are young. <laughs> <laughs> Your children. There's a lot of work. Yeah. That your generation, the work that I do, we there. This is not a reality we need to sit in, live in, and take. You know, this is a time for us to recognize there are many ways to activate um, to change this reality. Um, there are a lot of states' rights. Um, there are a lot of ways that we can move the national conversation. Um, and I do think it's really important that we don't write this off as a loss that we have to live with. Well, what do you think like the immediate response and reaction was like within like Planned Parenthood and these kinds of organizations? You know, from from the perspective that I had, it was just figuring out how to create avenues of service for those of us. So, you know, just, you know, so your so your um, your listeners understand this just meant that there was not like a federal right to um, to access to abortion. That does not mean by state here in New York state, I believe in New Jersey where you guys are, you guys have access to, to reproductive health care. It was more about how do we provide those in states that right away, because I think there were 20, 23 states that had what's called trigger laws at the minute SCOTUS um, overturned Roe versus Wade, they had laws existing that would suddenly come into, into use that allowed um, the prevention of abortion in their states. And so it's about how do you create um, access to services to ensure that people, again, fundamentally women having access to health care, were able to get that, whether that meant, you know, do you take them across state, state, state lines and help them in a, in a neighboring state? Are we able to do um, you know, the, the over-the-counter drug, can they be mailed? You know, there was a lot of strategies, but it was about access to service at the same time as continuing the work that we have been doing on the legal and policy front. And to the point that I made earlier, this is, this is not a fight that we have lost. We have had a significant setback, but there are two different mindsets when you think about something as a loss and you write it off versus a setback and you have to just sort of channel your energy get strategic and keep fighting right I think that's like it's something that's really inspiring to see like so many people coming together to like um counteract this because I yeah. think it really gave like a new fire to the women's rights movement which I think is really cool yeah and it'll be interesting to see you know how much the GOP overstepped with the midterm elections um there is going to be a true like almost transactional, like being able to see, you know, we might not agree on many other things, but taking away this right might actually get, um, you know, a certain a voting set to come out in November. And I think in particular, young people as frustrating as politics are, and I feel so bad because you guys are of, what, what generation are you guys? 
are you guys Gen Z? Yeah. Gen Z. Um, Y'all have had a crappy hand. (laughs) 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 To to grow up in the Trump administration, I can't even fathom that. (laughs) Um, But just everything that has been going on, um, it is so important to get out and vote and like what it means for us to be represented. If there's anything that I hope this also engages is like, we also have to show up in politics and it doesn't have to be like running for senator or congressperson or something like that. It's like, who's on the school board? Who's on the city council? There's a lot of things that you guys don't understand can like influence at the very local level that has like serious significance um, in the way your community functions. And I do hope that this is a wake up call for young people to think about politics, not, not as like yucky politics, but really like this like movement maker, this movement builder, um, and I think if the right people get into politics, you just have a better politics, right? And so yeah. um, I do think it's a really awesome opportunity too. Absolutely. I think though, the thing with our, like, as you said, our generation has like the uh, power to make changes with the right like steps. But I mm-hmm. wanted to ask, like, at least for me, and I'm sure like Hema and most women our age, like we don't, know how to even like start a conversation around Mm. pro about around being pro-choice um with people who don't necessarily agree with us and how to make that a productive conversation yeah how do you suggest going about that yeah well you know i I spent the last like decade as a diplomat right (laughs) the reality is um i had to have a lot of unfortunate conversations you know i think it depends on who it is, what kind of relationship you have. You know, I, I do think the context, right? Mm-hmm. Is this like your auntie or is this like the girl you sit next to like in, you know, algebra or whatever? Mm-hmm. I think that first you have to ask questions. So the thing about having really hard questions, like conversations is that you have to invest in being the listener. But one of the things that I have as like a superpower is that even though I am a little aggressive once I have strong opinions, et cetera, I know how to listen. And so when you listen, and if it's actually active listening, you could see where openings are. So if somebody is not pro-choice, it's interesting to find out why aren't they? Mm-hmm. Is it just because they heard it at home? Is it because they know of it, like a really scary story that like kind of traumatize them? I think it's trying to figure out where they, um, you know, where, where that perspective is coming from, because that then helps you like, you know, fundamentally understand how to have the conversation back with them. And I'm going to take one pause because I have a six-year-old in front of me because it is a DOE holiday. Honey, you need to lower that. Lower that, please. Thank you. (laughs) I wish we could capture his look. He's like, she's talking to me. I thought she's on the podcast. Yeah, it's that loud. Lower it. But I do think that, I think that is like the most important thing is like the listening part of it. And sometimes you have to know somebody's opinion is so strong. There's no way to like convince them otherwise. So then maybe the middle ground is, is that are they open to listening to your side of it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's, 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 it's taking like the patience of like going through all those levels of engagement, but that's the only way to do it um, is, is I think through that strategy, you know? Yeah. How do you suggest like bringing up the topic itself? Because I think um, aside from like someone's personal view on it, just talking about abortion or sexual education or anything like that is considered taboo in so many situations. 
um, for being like a sensitive topic. So how do you consider like bringing that up? You know, first of all, it is such a shame that we are in 2022 and talking about women's <laughs> access to healthcare. And, you know, my husband uh, walks, is, is always wearing this t-shirt that says reproductive rights are human rights. And I love how many women are like, yes, yes, I do think we, we need more swag around our priorities. I could like, you know, just physically show. Um, it is, I think, if it is, and, I, and you know, and I think maybe where we're also skirting are like cultural lines and like, the, I don't know, but you guys look South Asian, I'm Sri Lankan born, there's only so, there's only some, you know, uh, conversations we could have with our parents and aunties and stuff like that. I think it's about access to women's healthcare. You know, like, this is also the thing is like, it is great to just say it's about you know, abortion, and you see the way the GOP talks about it, like healing them after they're born. I mean, they see this, they say these really, really extreme things. So I believe the majority, 90% of um, abortions happen within like the first 15 weeks, right? This is when you find out that you've, I've had two miscarriages and one of them I had um, a DNI, which is the equivalent of like a medical abortion. And it was because my doctor wanted to see it was an unviable uh, embryo. He wanted to see if there was anything genetically wrong with it. But when you make decisions like that, most of the time they're difficult. Most of the time they're like core to your, your, you know, your personal health. And I think if you could start having those conversations, that's one way to open it up. Um, I think, unfortunately, talking about like access to abortion, like triggers people and they see, you know, these crazy, um, you know, visuals that have been hammered into us for like the last 50 years about killing babies. And that's just, it's just not that. And we need to get better about how we talk about it in our own comfort mm -hmm. in talking about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It definitely is all about how, like how it's portrayed. I How do you think the media has had a big role in like kind of changing the mindsets of people toward like abortion? Like how, do you think the media played a big role in that? I mean, it depends on what kind of media too, right? I will say like you guys, I, do you still read Handmaid's Tale? No. Because quite honestly, it is, you could not only read it, you should watch it, mm -hmm. and you should watch the show on Hulu and then listen to Ezra Klein's podcast with Margaret Atwood. Mm -hmm. And she wrote Handmaid's Tale back in the 70s when she was in East Germany, like before the wall fell. For her to see, and the way she breaks down why she felt like Gilead would happen in this particular way, why it would be fundamentally a religious-based conversation. Because her point was that nobody's going to take away one of their own human rights, right? A lot of women are like, you know, no abortion for anybody. You don't take away like one of your own human rights for like an individual. You take it away because God tells you to, or something that is very um, overwhelmingly influential. And it's so fascinating how she saw that 40 years ago. You watch it now and there are so many parallels and you see some of the language that's happening. And I know you asked a media question and listen, the way Fox News covers it, where the versus MSNBC, it definitely does influence the way people are, are channeling that. Um, but I also think that we as individuals and young people and young women need to understand what our own rights are. This is your body we're talking about. You preface this with, you know, my, my mom and my grandmother had more rights than I do now. Um, you're in New Jersey, but if you went to another state, you're absolutely right. And that to me is, um, 
it is a, we are in a moment of urgency and we can't be shy to talk about it. And we have to be strategic about how we do it. And there's some people that want to be in your face and talk and fight about it. And others that want to be more subtle and try to have the difficult conversations. I think that really is up to you and how you want to take this on. Um, but I think we need all sides <laughs> sort of activated on this. Um, I know earlier you mentioned like how our, how our like background has an effect on the way the conversation is led. I wanted to ask for you specifically, how did your upbringing and your personal life affect your work in as like an advocate for reproductive rights? You know, my, I started as an advocate for women's rights, right? Mm -hmm. So specifically, I, I have the honor of being on the board of the Center for Reproductive Rights. Um, but my, my entire career has been shaped around advocacy for women's rights. And much of that was shaped by, I was, um, I was uh, a 1980s dreamer. I was an undocumented immigrant um, back in the 80s. I got, a, uh, I got a path to citizenship thanks to Ronald Reagan's amnesty in 1986. Look how far we have come along. <laughs> um, and I'm a survivor of domestic violence. My father is mentally ill. And, you know, I grew up in a sort of violent um, home and one in which my mom really couldn't leave because we were in this like, you know, tight knit Sri Lanka community in Southern California who was like, you just like, don't leave your man kind of thing. Um, and that like sort of lived experience made me really aware of how I wanted to use any influence and power I had as I went into my career um, around advocating for girls and women's empowerment and how to enable them um, to achieve their best. And so that is really how I feel like these like dark, unfortunate childhood traumas actually really influence the kind of like badass work that I have done as like a grown up. And, you know, that's something that has always even though I was you know the commissioner my, my focus is on international humanitarian development issues being part of the center's board is a way for me to still stay true to the causes like close to my heart and like sort of actively fight while I still do still do work that I think is you know really important to be doing. That, I gotta say like even just for me like that is so inspiring to see like a South Asian woman like coming out and speaking out about all these sorts of things because I think um, especially in our culture, like it's something that we're encouraged not to talk about and to like stay quiet and like follow the path that's given to you. So that's like, that's really admirable. <laughs> it's not, it's like not easy, but it's also um, like you have to do it. Obviously I'm like 20 years older than you guys, right? So I'm like, I've had time to grow into my voice, but I think it's recognizing in every sort of phase that you guys go through how you're like, like really staying true to your voice. There's going to be a lot of times in which where you have to censor yourself. This is not the right conversation. Like you kind of have to do those ninja moves as you go, you know, through your, through, through your relationships at home, at school, you know, at work, and then where you end up 20 years from now. But I do think if you always have like that strength of your inner voice and values, that will always come out, right? There's just like certain realities of, you know, being living at home and just having all this pressure to maybe not speak on certain things, but that doesn't mean you can't when you're in school or when you go off in college. But again, just educate yourself about these, you know, about the things that you care about. Um, has your work with like all of these different um, 
like politically oriented uh, topics affected your personal life, like your connection with family and friends? So I don't think it's my, um, it's my work that has affected it. I will say pre like Sarah Palin GOP, I used to have friends of every political, right? I, you know, with my, with my GOP friends, we like fundamentally disagreed on like fiscal policy to address poverty. There has been something that has clearly happened over like the last decade, the last five years that has brought out just some of the fundamental racism, xenophobia, um, you know, this, this deep dislike, fear, hatred for immigrants, which is like, what? To me, this is like, what makes this country one, the, one of the most beautiful um, that, that, have, that have made it very hard for me to connect with some family who, you know, actively support like a manga style, perspective and it's interesting and immigrants too and south asians too but there is this aspect of we we did so we worked so hard we pulled ourselves up from the bootstrings everybody should and not see sort of what institutional racism has done to this country you know there's just there so there are some it has definitely impacted politics has impacted relationships that i have with family but it's not because i work in politics it's because of the reality of it is now ingrained in all of our lives. I mean, I don't even think you guys in high school can like disconnect from the reality, the harshness, the in, insanity <laughs> that is quite on. And which is why we were talking about, you know, Roe versus Wade. It's it is just um, we're we're living in a moment of extreme, mm-hmm. and I think those of us that care about, you know bringing back some normalcy there's a lot of work that we need to do and this is not the time to look away or to get tired and say this is too much this is the time to get strategic and work even harder yeah i have to agree with you like a lot of times it feels like we're taking steps backward like what somia said at the beginning about feeling like we're reliving the history that we're learning about in school so what do you have like any advice or any tips to help people cope with like the emotional and mental effects that seeing these steps backwards can have on them. Yeah, and you know, and what's so beautiful at least is we are talking about mental health um, far more than we ever did as a society. And I think part of that has to do with the trauma that we're all feeling after COVID um, or in COVID, (laughs) Um, but like the last two years, right? And so that has made mental health become so much more, like okay to to talk about um you know i honestly think when it comes to that kind of trauma and everybody has their different ways in which they cope it really is about talking to people and having support networks whether it's your family or your friends um you know i think you're going to have colleagues or not colleagues fellow students friends who are probably going to need access to abortion and other reproductive health care um and there's ways to get it and there's you know planned parenthood and all the other amazing institutions have ways that if it's not in your state, how you can go get it. But the most important thing is that you have somebody that you can talk to, somebody that you trust. I think the you know biggest strategy around mental health is to make sure that you're not doing it alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know who you feel safe with is up to you. It could be somebody older, it could be a teacher, it could be a family member, 
or it could be a close friend, but it is really important to remember to make sure that you are not holding the anger, the frustration, the confusion to yourself. Um, that's when everything gets to a point of overwhelming where quite honestly, where inaction happens too, right? And so you have to, this is part of the cycle of we need you to stay healthy <laughs> so that you can take on the fight. You know what I'm saying? And so that that is a very long-winded way of just saying it's really important that you feel like you're doing this with other people. Right. Um, just to like end off this episode, how do you think that people our age can help? Because I feel like a lot of us feel helpless in not being able to, you know, speak up in a in an effective manner, in a like way that many pe- we can like connect with many people on the fight for uh, reproductive rights or women's access to healthcare in general. How do you suggest we go about help like doing our part in making a change? So you said effective as if you wouldn't be effective. Quite honestly, I think any activation you were going to take would be effective. First of all, you guys are like cruising towards 18 and voting age, right? So starting to have conversations about your role in our democracy, voting, et cetera, and what happens when you guys show up in that space. But how, you know, all I've heard through this conversation is how do we talk about it with others? You know, you can you can start like listening circles at school with your friends and just having this conversation. You can start a reading club. There's just so many things that have, it doesn't have to be about, and if reproductive health, women's health care is a little bit too triggering. I don't know how conservative or not your school is or your group of friends. There's another, you know, expand it to just like, what is like women's empowerment in this day and age look like? Maybe we need to learn a little bit more about the struggle that got us here and what we have kind of taken for granted too, right? As young people, that's a lot of like, that's a lot of pressure to put on you. But if there is some way to encourage conversation, that that honestly is hyper effective. Then you don't know what that that conversation will trigger. That could trigger activations as you guys are going off into high school, into into college. That could happen in like the community and like a local town hall, but you guys have a voice and need to be heard. You guys just have to be smart about using it because you're young, right? And so like, you don't want to overstep, get your parents mad, like that kind of thing. But there are ways in which, honestly, all of these things are going to be effective because they'll build on it later. Yeah, just, I think that's really helpful too, because like, it'll help. Um, I think it gives us a lot more ease to think like we can do something to help instead of just sitting by and like watching everything get worse and worse. Yeah, and I think that, but that's for any any issue, right? Like you feel better if you're engaged in it in some way. And there's just so many ways I'm telling you guys to start like a book club. And just, you never know the kind of relationships you'll get once you start having these conversations. And where will that go? Maybe this becomes something a little bit bigger. You guys are sophomores, right? So you have two years for this. Um, I think I think there's a lot of really cool things you guys can do. And I'd love to be like a visiting guest. I can come like, you know, read the book with (laughs) y'all. Yeah. Oh my God. That'd be really interesting to have you on. And like, I think we really need more people, especially like of our um, like cultural realm to just like talk about uh, this particular issue and people. Yeah. I think that there, I don't think there are that many South Asian women who are 
at least I haven't connected with as many South Asian women who are so open to speaking about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, well, I'm going to have, I'm going to have to send more your way. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast and talking to us about this. And my pleasure. Um, I think that's all. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, reaching out and I look forward to staying in touch with you guys.